News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. What are the priorities for the third Liberal government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau? Well, that is what we will find out today in the speech from the throne from Ottawa. For more on that, we're joined by Global News political journalist Amanda Connolly. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So what are we expecting today? Today, there really is, again, a a lot to be determined until we actually hear the wording of that speech. But I I think we can say that broadly, we are expecting to see kind of the broad strokes here of a plan from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for how he how he envisions the country uh, moving forward, really, as we move into what I think everyone is really hoping will be the end game here of COVID-19. So that's really looking at the kind of continued economic supports for Canadians, how he sees the sort of uh, exit ramp, I guess, from the pandemic here. And also how he plans to rebuild towards more of a uh, a greener economy. This has been a big thing for the Liberals, of course. We had heard uh, a couple of years ago that they had really wanted to include this uh, in in a big way. It's kind of big new vision for the future, the rebuild. Uh, We didn't quite see that earlier in the pandemic. And so this this could, I wonder, be an opportunity for them to maybe lay out a little bit more of that that detail. But um, again, really focusing on the vision ahead and kind of where where they see the the. the pandemic going over the next the next few months. Right. And of course, this, this speech will also be historic based on who is delivering it as well, won't it? Yes, of course, Mary Simon, who is the first Indigenous person to serve as Governor General. Her appointment was a, a huge milestone for Indigenous people in Canada. We know that she has also been working hard on her French. She did not uh, have the opportunity to learn French growing up as a child in uh, in Quebec. Uh, in an Indigenous community there and, and going to uh, government schools there. And so that's, uh, that, of course, she's been making a big effort where we have been seeing her to really work on uh, work on that and, and kind of speak in all all three of the languages that, uh, that she is either learning or knows. And so certainly this is always a big moment for for her, for Indigenous people as well, to see a lot of the, the kind of ceremonies and the um, the, the symbols that speak to to those the, those communities incorporated into some of the bigger ceremonies here in Canada. So certainly, again, hugely uh, momentous occasion uh, on on a number of fronts. Right. So we know that the throne speech, Amanda, pres- like has like a long term roadmap of what a government wants to do. But there's a lot that they apparently want to do before the Christmas break, and it feels like the clock is ticking on that, though. It does. This this was a little bit surprising. We we learned this yesterday when uh, Liberal House Leader Mark Holland came out and told reporters he basically has kind of a mini roadmap here for the next four weeks. Of course, the House will rise again at the end of December for another break uh, until the end of January. And Holland came out saying there are really four things that the government thinks they can get adopted and passed during that time frame. First of all, um, more legislation kind of authorizing some of the COVID supports they've already announced. Those have to be formalized in law. Also, a ban on the hospital protests that we'd seen earlier in the summer and through the fall here. That was a big promise for the government, too. A ban on conversion therapy um, as well is is kind of one the Liberals have really been um, looking at here for for a number of, of years. I think you can you can safely say now. But also a paid sick leave deal. This is a really big one because we know this is such a big issue during the COVID-19 pandemic. People uh, simply don't have enough sick leave uh, with their employers. And so this plan would... Uh, particularly target people who are working in federally regulated industries. So not uh, not all Canadians, certainly not most Canadians, but definitely a fairly narrow subset of the group that the federal government actually does have authority over. Hmm, interesting. All right. So would you say it's safe to say that with this speech, there won't be a whole lot of surprises? 
This is always, you know, this, this is interesting. I was talking to, to colleagues the other day, and, and I think it's difficult to say at this point. I think that is certainly the assumption. But um, again, a lot of that is coming from the fact that we, we saw broadly the, the vision laid out by the government in the April budget in the election campaign as well. And so a lot of what they're talking about, um, what they have kind of branded themselves as to Canadians is already out on the table. That said, so you never know sometimes with governments, right? They can always surprise you. They can always have um, new ideas or new, new things that maybe um, they've just kind of decided on a dime to do or they've been thinking about for a while and just haven't really announced. So certainly um, always, you, you never know until you know, and that we're certainly going to be keeping a close eye on that one today to, to figure out exactly what they're, what they're envisioning. All right, we'll be listening. Amanda, thank you. Thank you. Amanda Connolly, our global news political journalist in Ottawa, talking about the throne speech coming down today. And of course, we will have complete coverage for you right here. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm sure you've heard the phrase by now. It seems to be stuck in my head. And that is that a parade of storms is going to be making landfall over BC in the coming days. That according to the forecast from Environment Canada. So we thought, let's find out. We're talking about South Coast. We're talking about the North Coast. What is going to happen here? Joining us now is Armel Castellan, who's a warning preparedness meteorologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you so much. You've been so busy this last couple of weeks, haven't you? <laughs> yes, but uh, I don't think as busy as the first responders and search and rescue on the ground. So no Very true. Here. Very true. Okay, so this is clearly the area that you now specialize in. Armel, what do we need to know about what's happening to the weather this week? Well, the the short of it is that, you know, the the atmosphere, the Pacific in particular, has been supercharged and very active here since mid-September. We've had, you know, three months almost now with very active weather, and that's continuing. So without a doubt, we got, quote-unquote, lucky uh, in, on, in two ways. It could have been worse two weekends ago, uh, but it was very bad. And we got so lucky in that the week following was, relatively speaking, benign weather. Yes, we had a tiny little bit of a storm mid-week, mid, uh, but all in all, we've had very little to contend with, which is obviously very good. But we are going right back into the fray. Uh, we are going to see a storm, and it is tapping into subtropical moisture. So it is an atmospheric river. It's not the same as what we saw a couple weekends ago. We get 20 to 30 of these any given winter, fall and winter, and uh, they all have varying degrees of severity so that they can either pass through over 12 or 24 hours and not last 48, and others are just not going to pack that same amount of moisture. So but we will see, you know, that 40 to 80 millimeters across the, the Fraser Valley, uh, a little bit less near Hope, a little bit more in the North Shore Mountains, but definitely a, a good amount of rain, um, you know, a proper November day. It is our wettest month. Uh, on Thursday in particular, with the freezing levels climbing up to above mountain tops. So some melt is associated with that as well, uh, but not, like I said, as potent as what we saw. So uh, certainly n not the same impacts. However, of course, the vulnerabilities are there. And so we want to be, everybody to be very clear on, on how this is going to affect the current situation on the South Coast. And the break is very short. We go right back into it on Saturday and we will see again another atmospheric river, not extraordinarily strong, but still it's there. It will be uh, something to contend with for all the recovery efforts. And without a word of a lie, we go right back into it uh, early next week. Yeah. 
On Monday, we will see another plume of moisture coming right from the south, from the Hawaiian direction, uh, and really just back to back to back. And, uh, you know, the early indications are that we will continue to see that even into later next week. So it's very, very active is the short of it. Now, you guys were able to predict quite accurately the amounts of rainfall that we got, right? That was record breaking a week, 10 days ago. Do you see any records being broken in this next round of storms? I don't think it's going to quite reach record-breaking levels per, you know, 24-hour segments or even storm totals, whether it lasts a little bit more than 24 hours. Um, I would say these are all in the scope of things. uh, You know, they're relatively speaking November storms. So uh, they, yeah, if we had a scale that was uh, out there, which we're working on and we don't have, uh, you know, socialized yet and it's not really ready for prime time, but it will uh, kind of rank these from one to five, maybe even beyond that as climate change develops more. Um, We will likely consider these kind of AR1s, atmospheric over level one. So they are mostly um, uh, not going to cause detrimental impacts, but they could, in this case, exacerbate the, con- the conditions that we're already facing, uh, obviously, on the Sumas Prairie and the, and the, and the landslides, mudslides uh, deeper into, into the uh, southwest interior. Right. I know that there's work that's being done right now. You mentioned it. The, the minister, Mike Farnworth, has mentioned it as well on kind of changing how we view these, having a new ratings system. Is that where we are at now, Armel? Can you tell us a bit about that work? Yeah, it's really fascinating work. Uh, we've been working with other met agencies and professionals in the, you know, the landslide departments, in uh, infrastructure. Um, also, you know, climate change is such a big part of this. It's there is a little bit of a moving target, as you well know. Uh, the conditions out there are changing. We are able to hold more moisture than we were in pre-industrialized times, and that's only getting worse. So, the projections are that you know, atmospheric rivers are not only here to stay but to get stronger, more frequent, uh, and sometimes longer lasting, just depending on how stable the the directions and the flows are. So, you know, those 24-hour atmospheric rivers being uh, one thing, but 48 or more is a whole other level of, uh, of disaster. And that's what we need to kind of brace ourselves for. So having a scale that kind of describes how potent it is, how much moisture can be held in that plume, that fire hose that's kind of aiming towards the coast, and then also how long is it going to last? Because if it's progressive and it's moving down the coast and everybody from Haida Gwaii all the way down to Oregon gets, you know, 12 hours, it's probably not that big of a deal. Uh, But if it stalls and it really uh, doesn't move too much and kind of just stays in that spot for, yeah, upwards of 36 hours, that's when we really want to have that scale and we can kind of describe it to everybody that way. And that's something that we all have to learn, isn't it, Armel? Because, I mean, you can develop this. It's like a couple of weeks ago, we were amused by the term atmospheric river. We're not amused by that anymore because now we know what it can actually mean. That's right. Yeah, we. Uh, it is a kind of a poetic term, and maybe we should go back to the term we used to use, like these conveyor moist conveyor belts, and they just didn't quite ring and, and get into the media the same way. So, yeah, they are absolutely notorious when they get 
too strong. Uh, they are a big part of our hydrologic system. Uh, and, you know, it's, 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 it's very interesting because we're seeing more and more these last, you know, eight or ten years, uh, that polarization of the, of, the, of the water cycle where we get very much less during the summer months, obviously the very strong drought, and wildfire, and smoke season that we've been seeing, and then much more in the winter months. I'll just put one stat in front of you right now. We used to measure half of the annual total of rain for places like Vancouver in 12 calendar days. Okay, so that seems like a lot, you know, in those 12 days. Well, the projections for uh, the worst case um, as we go forward is that half of the annual total precipitation budget would be falling in six calendar days, meaning those six days are going to have to be doubly as strong. And that goes part and parcel with how these atmospheric rivers uh, could be developing. And, you know, we just saw a very, very potent one. And, right. and that's very much the future. So you have to find a way and you and the government have to work together to find a way to communicate that to people. So we understand the force of, of some of these storms we're going to be getting. Yes, much like the the hurricane categorization right. or tornadoes, you know those things didn't just pop up overnight. They they, they took a while to develop to prove them, uh, not only scientifically and through the evidence that they're looking at, but also to socialize them to the public so to make sure that we're t- if we're talking about an AR four uh, and it kind of we can reference you know the the previous big AR four, then people get a sense of oh, okay, now I know what you're talking about with that rainfall right. warning because of course the rainfall warning and the snowfall warnings are still going to be there, but we're going to also be able to attach it with a bit more of a story uh, related to the scale. The new reality there. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good day. So interesting. That's Armel Castellan, Warning Preparedness Meteorologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada. This is Mornings with Simi. So let's find out what's going on in Abbotsford today. I know they're kind of racing against the clock here before the rain starts to fall again. We check in once again with our global news reporter, Emily Lazatin for a status, uh, you know, take a look at the status of the situation. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Good, thanks. Okay, so where are you? Is there anything going on? Yeah, I'm in Abbotsford right now, a different place from yesterday. We spoke yesterday about, uh, I was on Watcom Road, waters had receded, uh, but, you know, we... Sometimes we can forget that, uh, you know, just because waters have receded doesn't mean the rest of Abbotsford is okay. 22,000 acres are still underwater in the prairie. Um, And crews are working around the clock to reinforce those breach dikes. Again, they are sealed. They're building up to make them higher. They're still working on that. Uh, But Environment Canada City just came down with a series of storm warnings. And we are expecting uh, from really until from tomorrow until Sunday, we'll get a bit of a break on Friday. But depending where you are, anywhere from minimal rain to about 100 millimeters. So um, we keep using the words, words cautious optimism. And I yeah. think really that's what it is this week. But uh, we heard from Abbotsford's mayor yesterday. The water levels have dropped by seven inches. And uh, that led to some evacuation orders being rescinded. So great news all around there. It it means some roads were able to open. Farmers were able to get, some farmers, I should say, were able to get back onto their land to feed their cattle, get some equipment, uh, get some equipment in there. Um, So it's looking all right, but more rain is coming. Yeah, cautious, I guess, is what they would say. So has the forecast, Emily, do you think resulted in them kind of ramping up their efforts a little bit? Like they're so close here to making a real difference and getting some of these roads cleared off. 
Yeah, and, and that's that's also the worry too, right? To me, that whether it's Abbotsford or other mudslides across the province where they've cleared debris, uh, but there's still loose debris. And same thing in Abbotsford. Uh, crews are working. We have military soldiers on the ground. Not only are they working on these dikes, they are clearing debris from the roads. They're helping with cleanup efforts, uh, reinforcement where it's needed. Um, so it's really again a race against time to do whatever they can so that we don't see such a disastrous or catastrophic event like we did last week. Right. Okay. Good luck with that. Emily, thank you very much. Emily Lazatin, our global news reporter in Abbotsford, as you can tell, a bit of a race against time out there that they've had a few days here where it hasn't been raining. So they're hoping to really make some progress. But as we also just spoke to our Mel Castellan from Environment Canada, there is more rain coming. So they're trying, trying, trying. Good news is some people have had the evacuation orders rescinded. Some people have, and they can kind of make their way back home. I know that in Merritt, that's the situation right now. In Princeton, people are going back home. But of course, that is a whole new issue of dealing with recovery, right? So there's more to come on that. And of course, if there's any updates today, we will bring that to you. We're also talking today about getting emotional. A lot of these stories about flooding and people losing things like oh, it makes us emotional. You get, you know, teary and emotional while watching the news. There's also, you know, movies and TV shows that make us emotional too. And I've gotten so many emails from you this morning on this. And I tell you, Linda's, you kind of summed it up here, Linda. Linda said, as a kid, I can remember watching in wonderment. My younger sister cried while watching Little House on the Prairie. I remember crying was insane, Linda said, like full on sobbing. I would shake my head in disbelief. Linda had her daughter at the age of 36. She became a bit more sentimental, she said. But in the last five years, since her dad was diagnosed with vascular dementia, she's become very sentimental, she points out. Commercials, TV shows, movies. It even got to the point where they tear down a little old house in my childhood neighborhood and it can bring a tear to my eye. She said, geesh, my teenage self would be so disappointed. Linda, you hit the nail on the head. I think that's what happens to us. I know that's what happened to me, right? You change, you lose people or things happen in your life and all of a sudden you do become a little bit more sentimental, a little bit more emotional. Yes, a little weepy when you watch some TV shows and some movies. What are the ones that do it for you? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that later today there will be a press conference with Health Minister Adrian Dix and Dr. Bonnie Henry to talk about the plan for rolling out vaccinations for 5 to 11-year-olds in this province. That's great. That's moving forward. Lots of parents, kids are looking forward to that. But also, there's an emphasis on seniors here too. BC Seniors Advocate Isabel McKenzie is reminding and encouraging seniors to get their booster shot for the COVID-19 vaccine. Let's talk more about that. She joins us now. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Why was it so important, do you feel, to put the message out about, hey, seniors, pay attention to this? Well, I think the evidence is pretty compelling that for older adults, uh, particularly those 70 plus and 80 plus and those who are immunocompromised, that the protection from this vaccine does wane over time and that there is this need for a booster shot, third shot, uh, jab, uh, whatever you want to call it. But it's really quite important. We've, uh, been, we've managed to go in and provide that for seniors who live in assisted living and long-term care. But most of the people live in the community. And so uh, 
people should be receiving now their invitation for their third shot. And if they aren't receiving it, uh, they should be contacting the Get Vaccinated Centre, making sure they're registered. Right now, the emphasis is on people aged 70 and over. Those who are homebound and received their first uh, and second shots at home should be getting a call from their local health authority. And if they're not, they should be contacting the local health authority. And if you're not able to get to the vaccination centre this time, even though you did for your first and second jab, call your home health team and, and the district nurse can come and provide you with your vaccine in the home. Do you feel that perhaps, you know, the the urgency to get the third shot is not as great as it was for the first and second? I think that's true. I think uh, we certainly, uh, when it came to the first and second shot, we were wanting to get wide coverage as quickly as possible. As you know, that was one of the reasons for extending the dosing interval, which in hindsight was actually a good thing because it also extended protection. Uh, So that was a a bonus, if you will. And now uh, for those who are older, uh, most particularly over 80, but, but we're emphasizing over 70 at the moment, this protection from the vaccine does wane. And we've seen some very, very compelling evidence out of a, a study done in Israel. Uh, it was recently published in The Lancet uh, that really speaks to the need to go and get this uh, third jab. We, we don't know what the future holds. This may be something we need to do every year um, or maybe certain uh, segments of the population need to do it every year. But, but right now, uh, uh, older adults need to get that third jab. Okay, so what do they need to know? When can they do this? Is there anything they have to do to get signed up for this? Well, if they're in the Get Vaccinated system and they received an invitation for their second vaccine, they should, by the same process, receive an invitation for their booster. And you should be receiving that invitation uh, four to six months after your second shot. So people will know when they got their second jab. If it's been four to six months and they haven't received an invitation, they should call the Get Vaccinated Centre and make sure that they are in the system and that that invitation is coming. If they received their second jab at home, uh, they should be receiving or have already received a call from their local health authority with uh, a time uh, for the district nurse to come and administer the vaccine in the home. If they haven't, they should contact their local health authority. Or if they're no longer able to get to the vaccine center because their uh, mobility challenges have, have increased since they last went, they should be contacting their local health authority to get a home visit uh, for their vaccine. Right. Okay. So you wanted to make sure the message gets out there, right? Because people might be hearing an awful lot right now about kids, like children 5 to 11, but we forget that there's a whole lot of other people out there who should be getting that booster shot. They should be. And for the most part, they'll get it through, they'll they'll receive the invitation. And so message number one is take up that invitation and get that shot. Message number two is if you're over 70 and you haven't yet received that invitation, please make sure uh, that you are registered in the system. A vaccine passport does not mean you're registered in the get vaccinated system. They're two different systems. So some people will think, oh, I'm registered because I went and got my vaccine passport. That's a different system. Right. So, so the thing sure is, if you're you, registered. Right. So if you registered the first time, you're still registered. 
you you are and you should be receiving um, the invitation as I said it it the system does work uh, but we want to make sure that nobody falls through the cracks and there isn't a glitch somewhere so if you are over 70 and haven't received that invitation yet check and make sure you're in the get vaccinated system all right I'll make sure the message gets out there thank you so much for your time okay thank you very much this is mornings with Simi. Well, there is good news and bad news when it comes to BC's economic picture. The good, we're making progress. The deficit for this year is nowhere near what we had predicted back in April. The bad, well, the last week, of course, and what it's going to cost us to put this province back together. Some experts even say it could be the most expensive weather-related event in Canada's history. So how are we going to deal with it? Joining us now, Finance Minister Selena Robinson. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. What do we know right now about last week and what it could potentially cost this province? Well, as you, you start off in your comments, uh, we have made good progress in our economic recovery. Uh, we, we did plan for the worst, and British Columbians, I have to say, did give us their best. Uh, and so our, our deficit uh, is reduced to uh, $1.7 billion is our forecast. Uh, our expenses are on track, but really it's the revenues that have really uh, come through for us. What that says is that we're in a good fiscal um, um, picture. We have a good fiscal picture right now, given that we have had uh, this, this, significant, this significant weather event, the impact that it's had on our infrastructure. We are uh, well poised uh, to deliver what British Columbians need us to deliver, which is to fix the infrastructure, to build back better. Uh, and that's exactly what we're going to be doing in the months and the years ahead. Right. So no cost estimate yet on what we might be dealing with here, because it all looks very expensive. Well, I, I am I am sure it will be expensive. We, we've all seen the pictures of the devastation. We've seen uh, um, the washed out roads, washed out uh, infrastructure. We've seen the challenges with dikes. We've seen the flooding. Uh, there's no doubt that this is going to be uh, 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 a very um, in, in critical investment that we need to make, that we have to make, and that we will make. Uh, but it will no doubt be very costly for us. Um, right now, I mean, we're... Um, doing flood response. That's the most important thing is to keep people safe, to protect businesses, to protect communities, to help people get through uh, this this period of time. Um, And as we're speaking, there's assessments um, ongoing. We have people on the ground that are taking a look, uh, starting to take a look at what the overall impact has been. And so we're going to be making sure that it would be really uh, that we have all the, the information that we need as we do this assessment so that we're building the kind of infrastructure that we need to last through these sorts of weather events. And so that will take time. Uh, and we're going to make sure that we, we build back better and that we build back right. Up until last week, up until all of this happened, though, it seemed like BC was doing very well economically. Can you tell us about that? And where were the bright spots? Well, certainly what we saw was that uh, personal income tax was up by $3 billion. Uh, corporate income tax is up by $1.5 billion from what we predicted. Uh, and that's, I think, very significant. And what it tells us is that when governments invest in people and, and help them through uh, the, the, the crisis, helping both the federal and the provincial government investing in people, helped people to get through the downturn in the economy that we saw back in March 2020. Remember how, how hard things were and people really stopped working, except for those on the front lines. And so so part of what we saw was by investing in people, by making sure that they had the resources that they needed to get through, that we were able to see um, uh, the economy continue to to uh, uh, do its thing, uh, making sure that people were, were able to work, participate in the economy. And also we saw the other thing that was interesting, we saw retail sales 
um, go up significantly. And so people were purchasing uh, clothes and gardening equipment and, uh, and, and helping uh, keep the economy going. And so these are the sorts of elements that have, have contributed to the, the, the bottom line in terms of, of revenues. We also saw, and I have to say that um, ICBC uh, has uh, uh, brought in a $700 million improvement from what we expected from Budget 2021, which uh, I think really speaks to uh, the changes that we made at ICBC. So not only were we able to give drivers uh, rebate checks, two of them, but uh, we see we see uh, this, this uh, Crown Corporation um, doing quite well right now. Can you really zero in? Like when you talk about retail sales improving like that, you can really zero in to see where those improvements are? Well, we uh, we do have uh, a little bit of, of information about where, where people are spending their dollars. Uh, and that always helps us to understand, you know, which parts of the economy, um, you know, are doing okay. So, for example, we know that ser- the services industry, for example, um, that that's uh, pretty sluggish. Tourism, hospitality, uh, you know, they, they really, you know, haven't been doing as well. But we can see that clothing and clothing accessories have done well, motor vehicles and parts, uh, building and gardening supplies. So when people talk about, well, I can't go on a vacation, so I'm going to be doing a renovation, for example, we see, we see how the, the shift happens um, in retail sales. So, right. so there was certainly lots of activity happening. Um, and, uh, and that tells us that you know, British Columbians um, have done a significant amount of heavy lifting uh, through uh, COVID. Um, and uh, you know, what I, I want to reassure British Columbians that as a government, we, you know, we've been there through COVID. We've made sure that we've had supports in place. And we're going to continue to do that because we believe that when you invest in people and when you invest in businesses and when you invest in communities, people get through it. Um, and we're going to get through uh, this, this current weather event as well. We also know from the data that there are a lot of people moving here. Uh, from other provinces coming to British Columbia, and that's made quite a difference as well, hasn't it? Well, we've we've, we've never seen uh, such uh, provincial migration, uh, where there are almost I think it's about thirty thousand uh, people from across the nation have come to British Columbia, uh, recognizing that uh, with a diverse economy that we have, um, and with the investments that we're making in childcare, for example, that really adds to quality of life, and and uh, people have uh, chosen to make British Columbia their home. Which is which is which is good for us, and I think it speaks volumes to the kinds of communities that we have here in British Columbia. So for now, things look good, but do you think like what are we looking ahead to the next fiscal update? Will we then start to see? Do you think some of the impact of what's been happening? Well, uh, you know the, the next uh, the next fiscal update uh, will frankly be budget twenty twenty two. We're putting that budget together as we speak. Um, we uh, recognizing, of course, uh, this this current situation, and that's. Uh, our, our thinking is, uh, you know, certainly paying attention. We've turned our minds wholesale to right. uh, this, this flood event. Um, and, we're, of course, we're also engaging with the federal government. I don't want to leave them out of this conversation. Uh, they have said that they would be uh, with us. I spoke a couple of times over the weekend with the federal finance minister, Christopher Freeland. We've had very frank conversations about what we're, uh, what we're, we're dealing with, what we're facing. And, and they recognize, too, uh, that they need to join with us in, in rebuilding uh, and building back better and building back a more resilient British Columbia. Well, thank you so much for your update this morning and for your time. Thank you very much, Simi. Have a great day.